Our scripture reading today begins in Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. First Corinthians fifteen nineteen through 26. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. I wanted to talk about one small, tiny idea called the criterion of embarrassment. That's a really big term, and when we get there, I'll explain it. But it just means that uh, one, of the, one of the signs of a, an authentic testimony is something that is not becoming of the person giving the testimony. It's important for you as someone who is defending the faith against people who would seek to dissuade you from the faith or in your sharing of the faith, it's important that you understand this mechanism of defense. Now, we are not saying by any means that we are judges over the text. The text, the, the very words of God as contained in scripture is received by us. But one of the ways that we understand this account, this historical account to be true is is the authenticity of the writings correct? And then also, is 
what the writings contain, does that narrative sound at all, uh, are, are there any signs that it's false? And it, does it contradict another place in scripture? And so there's many criteria that we use as Christians to understand and uphold the, uh, the authority of the scriptures, but one of them that's deeply important is the criterion of embarrassment. And uh, I hope to be able to, to show you why. After that, we're going to move to Paul's interaction with the, the doctrine of the resurrection as it applies to the great Christian hope. You are not destined to live in heaven forever. That is to say that the great Christian hope is not dying and going to heaven. The great Christian hope is dying, going to heaven for a time, and then being resurrected, receiving a glorified body, and living and reigning with Christ on an earth. And that earth is a real place. And in fact, as the writer C.S. Lewis talks about it, when he's describing our aspirations being a sign or a pointer to that there must be something greater, a more real reality than what we have today. Just as the old covenant contains shadows and symbols of Christ, so also this world God has given us as a pointer to a greater reality. That is to say that at the end of the ages, when Christ comes and returns, we see the great Christian hope fulfilled. Namely, that there is a real reality that is more real than today or more real than now, and that comes at the end of the ages after the resurrection from the dead. Uh, it's a great doctrine which is in much neglect today, but it is very important when we consider what is real, what is, what is this world, is it just a phantasm, is it just shadows? No, it's real and there's something coming which is even greater and more real. And then finally, as Paul deals with the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses it to lead to an understanding of the fact that Christ really does have a kingdom. And in fact, his resurrection is the proof of his being the king. If you were here on Friday night, we talked about the fact that Jesus, throughout all the Gospels, continually warred against the, the crowning, or that is, the people who would seek to take him by force and install him as king. And the only place that he recognized himself or allowed himself to be recognized as the king of the kingdom of God was on the cross. Over and over again, Jesus is running away from crowds who seek to install him as king. And he does that in order to demonstrate the nature of the kingdom of God. And then from that place, Paul reasons that the resurrection is actually proof that Christ's kingdom is coming. And he, just, he uses it to describe how it will come. Christ came and he began his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He then on the cross is crowned as a king. And then Paul, in writing about the resurrection, what it means, says exactly how his kingdom is continuing to come. His kingdom has come, and yet it is developing. And so the resurrection actually is very important to what we believe about the future. Because as Paul argues, it necessarily uh, will continue with a progressive victory. And that progressive victory uh, is often downplayed or discouraged or rejected through various ideas of eschatology, that is, what is the future going to hold? Our faith is not just a faith which is historical, it's historical and applies and is going somewhere. That going somewhere is a great crescendo in the reception of the Son of God back to this world. It's a great crescendo, not a dwindle, not a getting confused with other things, not a great apostasy that the church will manifestly reject the Holy Spirit, and reject the testimonies of God, reject the scripture, reject the covenants, but rather a great 
crescendo unto the reception of Jesus Christ, not a fly-in, uh, airdrop-style takeover from top down. It is a progressive unveiling of the kingdom of God. And that actually is central to the resurrection. I'm not hijacking Easter to get there, as, we, as I hope to show you. It's not, a, it's not a maltreatment of the resurrection to take it to eschatology. That's exactly where our reading forces us to go. So at the very beginning of the, the account in Luke, uh, the women arrive at the tomb, and it's important to see in verse 1, in Luke 24, it says they went to the tomb taking the spices that they prepared. Now, I don't know about you, um, but you don't bring something intentionally that you have no use for. Uh, it's very important if you're going on a journey and you don't have a car or a donkey that you would have carried the things that are necessary. And so we see in verse 1 that the assumption that these women have, being prevented from going to the tomb on the Sabbath, uh, after having seen the events take place late Friday night, resting on the Sabbath, and now coming on the first day of the week, they approach the tomb with spices in hand, and these spices are for the embalming and the treating of a corpse. Uh, if you've never been to a funeral, I would encourage you, it's, it's a healthy and, and regular thing that happens in life. Don't neglect your friends' uh, funerals or your you know, parents or relatives. It's important to go, but one of the things that funerals do is they lie to you about the nature of death. And they lie to you intentionally because without masking, without preventing the corpse from decaying, it is disgusting. It, it's, it's rotting flesh. It is, it is a body which is wasting away. And so these women are coming to prepare the body of Christ because they believe it to be an, an act of piety. It's something that is right to do. They anoint uh, a body to prevent the destruction of that body or that corruption of that body. Students of the Psalms will rightly understand that one of the Psalms that is talking about Jesus uh, very clearly says that he will, that the Father will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And so here they're bringing the spices because they believe this one who they had thought would be the, the Messiah, is going to see corruption. They thought his body will decompose. We must go to prepare it and, and present it. That way, his other devotees, other followers, could come and come to the tomb and be near it without experiencing the, the wretchedness that happens to a body as it decays. They had no uh, grid of understanding or expectation for the resurrection even though he explained it clearly. They found the stone rolled away in verse 2, but they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Why? They were looking for the body of the Lord Jesus. They didn't find it. Luke records that they didn't find it because that was their expectation. Verse 4, they were perplexed about this. It's very hard for us Christians to even enter into this because we've, especially those who've grown up in the church or in, in a culture which is still Christian uh, in many ways, um, every year we're reinforced with the idea that Christ raised from the dead. Indeed, that's why some of you are wearing nice clothing today. You know what day Easter is, what, day, what it means. And so it's, it's very difficult, but, but try to imagine for a second having no grid for the possibility of the resurrection. It doesn't exist as a possibility. It's not just that you have a probability saying that's like less than half a percent. No, it's not even a category. 
for these, these ladies who are bringing these spices. They fully expected to see Jesus' body, and they were totally confused when it wasn't there. Absolutely no one expected the resurrection. When the women go in, they see these two men who give the first testimony about the resurrection. As I mentioned, we're going to see how these men are actually angels. And uh, in verse 4, we see, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. The first pointer here is most people do not wear dazzling apparel. And in fact, at that time, no one really had like a battery-powered suit that would shine or anything like that. If you've ever seen uh, Comic-Con, it's, it's very weird. But uh, people, people wear clothing now that shines. But back at that point, they did not have this kind of clothing. And so these men are arrayed in appearance. And the next pointer that they're angels is verse 5. These women were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. Over and over again, in the context of the scriptures, when someone sees someone unexpectedly who is dazzling in appearance, they fall to the ground because they're terrified. This is a being, this is a body, a person, some sort of creature that is terrifying in, in appearance. This happens over and over again in the Old Covenant uh, scriptures, especially, for example, with Daniel, when he encounters someone who I, I believe is actually a Christophany. But there's one, and, and what happens to Daniel is he's so terrified, it says that he falls down as one who is dead. These women are bowing down to these people because they're arrayed in glory, and they carry some of the atmosphere and visual aspects of their home, which is God's throne with them, and God gives this to them in order to convey the glory of what is happening in the tomb. These two men, which we understand to be angels, are a reminder in a way, a symbolic reminder of the mercy seat which existed in the tabernacle that God had given Moses to establish and to build, that these two cherubs were placed, two gold cherubs were placed on the left and the right of the mercy seat. And here we see Jesus Christ's tomb being empty, and there are two angels in the tomb. Uh, another gospel writer says one at the head and one at the feet. Uh, now that image isn't fully developed here with Luke, but we're allowed to read other books of the Bible. And so we see what God is doing here with these men, these two men testifying about what has happened to Jesus. And that idea of understanding in the law that every fact will be confirmed by two or three witnesses becomes very important to understand that the, the that God is is interacting with these disciples of Christ in the way that he should be. That is to say, if we understand that God himself requires men to confirm things by two or three witnesses, even more so we see the resurrection as being verily uh, uh, verified by God in giving not only two or three witnesses, but two or three groups of two or three witnesses. These angels identify Christ as one who is a member of the living. And that, that phrase, the land of the living, uh, is, is extremely important here. These angels remind them of Christ's prophecies to him. It says in verse 6, he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, I want to just explain some biblical math in the counting of days. Sometimes people will say, well, Jesus said he was going to be uh, in, the, in the tomb for three days and three nights. And uh, I only see Friday 
uh, the end of Friday, a little bit of Saturday, and the beginning of Sunday. How, do, how does that equal uh, three days and three nights? When Jesus says that he will be the sign of Joah, Jonah, that is, just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, no other sign will be given to this wicked generation but the sign of Jonah. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's not describing what we as hour counters or minute counters are expecting. That is 72 full hours of, uh, of Christ in the tomb. The way that Hebrews uh, record time is any part of a day counts as being done on that day. And lest you think that that's like a trick, it's actually the case that we do the exact same thing. Uh, you know, especially when you're counting hours and filling it in in your timesheet. Somebody says, how many days did you work last week? Well, I only worked, you know, 100 hours, but, you know, I was there all seven days. And so the, the point is, we use this language in the exact same way. It's not trickery on the part of the, the disciples trying to say, well, yes, Jesus was verified as risen on the third day. It, they did not have to wait until Sunday night that night for Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night to complete those three days. And in fact, the way that the Hebrews counted things, because days exist from sunset to sunrise, not uh, from sunset to the next sunset, instead of the way we now count time, which is some imaginary point between the sun settings, um, which we call midnight now, uh, they did not even have to wait until Sunday morning. They could have seen him on what would have been in the very beginning of uh, the very late Saturday night, uh, and and it would have counted biblically for, for Christ being dead for three days because he was dead on three days. He was dead Friday around 4 or 5 p.m., and then into the Sabbath, uh, Joseph very quickly goes and gets the body, puts him in the tomb so that they could honor and keep the Sabbath. And then uh, after the Sabbath, uh, then into Sunday morning, you have death on Friday, death on Saturday, death on Sunday morning. That's very important to understand because it's actually a very common objection that, that people try to trick you up with. And when you're sharing with others, it's important to be able to say, no, this is actually the way that we count time just as they count time. Uh, it doesn't mean 72 literal hours. Nevertheless, these angels testify about this time period that he would uh, be crucified and on the third day rise. And then in verse 8 it says, and they remembered, this, they remembered these words. It's important to see that not only did they not have any grid for the resurrection being a reality or a possibility, but they also completely forgot and, and, and indeed may have never truly understood to begin with the fact that Jesus plainly told them in words that you can hear and that I can hear, I can say that the Son of Man must suffer, be delivered over to the hands of sinful men, be put to death, and on the third day rise. When they hear that, they don't remember and clearly, possibly, don't even understand at the first hearing. And so these angelic witnesses are simply reminding them exactly what Christ told them beforehand. This is one of the great reasons why it's not possible that the resurrection was even invented. Every single person in the resurrection narratives, as recorded in the Gospels, completely does not expect the resurrection to take place. The lack of understanding and the faithlessness of Christ's followers is proof of our deep dependency on God for, to open our eyes. It is not the case that you can just tell someone the gospel and have them in their own power or strength hear and understand it requires the spirit of God. 
And saying that is not an escape hatch for a historically untrue narrative. It is rather what is required by the action of God. God always utilizes his Holy Spirit in the opening of the eyes of those who are blind. And so we understand that this is a historically true thing which requires grace from God to receive and to believe. And so as we talked about just this idea that no one expected the resurrection even though they had been told, we now see a great principle of understanding and being able to demonstrate the gospel to others. As a Christian, you are not simply supposed to believe the gospel. You must become equipped to spread and to teach the gospel, to bring it to others. And one of the greatest ways to do that is to become a student of the text. And becoming a student of the text, you have to have tools. And I hope to give you one tool that I find to be absolutely uh, convincing in terms of an emotional reception. Our age is an age in which truth is not judged on merits outside of us. That is to say, our age does not respect and adore objective truth. That is, there is a truth which exists that is true whether or not you or I know it or believe it to be true. Now, although that truth exists, that truth is from God, and indeed Jesus Christ himself is the truth, our age is a time where we value and put a primacy or a, or a value on uh, emotional truth or subjective truth. And I find that this doctrine of the criterion of embarrassment actually resonates very strongly with people today. Now, this is not, as I said earlier, it's not possible to, to, to preach the gospel without the aid of the Holy Spirit. But you need to use every tool at your disposal. And those tools which resonate with your neighbors, utilizing those tools is a way of loving them. And so I want to show you this, uh, this way of reading the scriptures. And this is not just in the resurrection narratives. It's actually throughout the whole scriptures. Uh, but it's, it's definitely here in this story. The criterion of embarrassment is just an idea that states that the inclusion or the including of self-debasing materials, that is to say things that are embarrassing to the person who's giving the testimony, is actually a great sign that the testimony is true. Think about that for a second. All the motivation within someone who's giving a testimony about this it would have been much better if the disciples were seeking to establish the historical uh, truth of the resurrection, if they would have come into the story and everybody would have shown up at the tomb expecting the resurrection, right? Isn't that a much stronger case for the resurrection? Jesus told us, we believed it, we showed up, and he was resurrected. It is a much weaker argument, actually, to say that Jesus told us we totally didn't get it and showed up and he was there. And so when understanding the human motivations which come into play, the criterion of embarrassment is extremely helpful. Someone who voluntarily says something that damages themselves is clearly not, excuse me, is clearly not testifying on their own accord. We see this happen with the Gospels. Jesus, when he is interacting with the Pharisees, he says, one who testifies about himself is not giving a true testimony. And so here, this criterion of embarrassment is saying, if someone voluntarily gives up some information that makes them seem like the, the bad part of the story, it's actually, that gives credence to it. That, that gives a little bit more credibility to the account. And so this is extremely important to see. Verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them 
who told these things to the apostles. The criterion of, of embarrassment is here in this account in two ways. The first way is that at this culture, at this time, the witness of a group of women or even one woman was often considered to be invalid and not admissible in, in a court of law or any sort of court deciding the, the legality of something or, or whether someone was guilty. Now, we hear that and we're immediately disgusted because we're modernists and we just think, oh, they're, they're misogynistic. And indeed, this is a, an extremely misogynistic idea, but it's important to understand that in the context of this culture, if the disciples were inventing the doctrine of the resurrection and they were seeking to establish Jesus's resurrection from the dead as a historical fact, then they would have not included this because it was considered inadmissible in the court of law and reason. The very fact that they do include this is a great embarrassment on the, the disciples because they were told plainly they did not believe, they did not understand, and they were not there. And in fact, a, another aspect of the embarrassment here is that all the disciples did not go, but rather only Peter. The very next verse, uh, these words seemed to them an idle tale. Think about this. If you're establishing a religion that's made up, hypothetically, and that religion is based on this idea of faith and trust in the resurrection of Jesus, it does you no service to the spiritual authority that you would then wield in that church if you say that at first you weren't a believer. Think about that, especially in the context of, of uh, distortions of the gospel with like the word of faith movement. Everything's predicated on, I believe. And so to include the very fact that you yourself did not believe at the very beginning of the, the resurrection is a great testimony that these people are not bearing themselves witness, but rather are pointing to something that is outside of themselves. They're telling the truth. If the disciples had hoped their testimony of the resurrection of Christ was be, to be received by others, they would have downplayed both of these aspects, that it was first women who came and gave a testimony, and then they did not only not believe, but only Peter went. Verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling. Again, that's almost like a, a sub-point on point two, not only did most of the disciples not believe, but when Peter went, it said that he went home marveling, still perplexed, somewhat still confused about what has gone on. He didn't at that moment run back, tell everybody, and then they all returned. Now, in one of the Gospels, Peter does run back. Luke doesn't include that here. But the point is that only Peter, in Luke's account, even shows up to the tomb. Now, later on, there may have been a few, but it wasn't the whole group, certainly. And so this is an, an extremely helpful way to communicate the truth of these accounts. It's, it's giving credence to the fact that they're being honest about something that is embarrassing to themselves. Growing up, my parents made us practice the criterion of embarrassment, not using that term, although if you want to uh, have a textual critic in your home, I would give, you know, go ahead and give them that term. They always made us come home, and they encouraged us to tell them the good and the bad. You know, not only did you get an A, but you also punched the other kindergartner and, um, and you know, got in trouble on the playground. I actually got sent to the kindergarten. Uh, to the principal's office because I stuck my tongue out at another student. Imagine that. And uh, I, I don't think I ever shared that story, so there, there you go. <laughs> my testimony is true. 
So he doesn't understand where Christ is. And we, at that moment, along with the disciples, we don't understand where Christ is. That's somewhat of the mystery of our faith. And indeed, Christ is not giving them all the answers. There is an aspect of the mystery of our faith here that we don't know where Christ is, but we do know where Christ is not. He is not in that empty tomb. And this was verified by God by not just two or three witnesses. Again, that's the pattern. But what God does in this story, and it's important to see from the text, God gives two or three groups of two or three witnesses. The men who are in the tomb, who are angels, are witnesses. The women, who are three in number, Mary, uh, Joanna, and... um, the other Mary, uh, they are the three witnesses. And then here, the disciples hear about it. And then Peter goes. So not only is there two or three witnesses, there are two or three groups of two or three witnesses. And this is the major aspect of our faith. Without the resurrection occurring, nothing in Christianity has any worth at all. And that's what Paul then begins to tell the Corinthians uh, as he is uh, admonishing them to come to spiritual maturity. So let's turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul understands the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being the very surety of our eventual resurrection. That is to say, the resurrection does not simply vindicate that Jesus was innocent as he was being crucified, and it does not only vindicate him as the Son of God, but it also is the basis and establishing of and the, the foundation for our hope in the resurrection. Many of you have heard at various times that uh, you know a, a plea with you to turn to faith, and it's often delivered in, in a simple way as, uh, you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would spend eternity? And then the, the, then the pitch is, you know, without Christ you go to hell, and with Christ you go to heaven, and you spend eternity there. And it's not the case that this is, um, this is completely false. You do spend time with the Lord. Paul clearly states in the New Testament to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul lays out the understanding of the resurrection being grounded upon the resurrection of Jesus, there is a bodily resurrection which occurs. It is not a spiritual resurrection which occurs only after death in heaven in a sense. There is a bodily resurrection after Jesus Christ returns. And that is the great Christian hope. Perhaps you've encountered some hymns of old or or writings of other Christians who've lived a generation or two ago. This phrase has fallen out of modern parlance, but it used to be quite common. The great Christian hope, or the, the other term that was more common, the blessed hope. That is, the blessed hope of our faith, the real true core of Christianity, is not just dying and going to be with the Lord in an ethereal sense or in a spiritual sense, but the great Christian hope is that one day Christ will fully bring his victory against everything that was introduced by Adam. Christ does not just defeat sin in a propositional way in order to justify us and bring us to God in some spiritual sense, but he is completely remaking the world. And for those who are in him, he will raise them up to everlasting life instead of everlasting condemnation. And Paul reasons this way because of our union with Christ. This is a doctrine that is so dear to Christians, especially in times of great suffering, great hardship, that the believer is considered to be united with Christ. 
This shows up at first in the New Testament writings with the account of Jesus confronting Saul on the road uh, that Saul was taking to Jerusalem to go up and arrest Christians. And he stops Saul on this road. Saul's riding this donkey into Jerusalem and, and um, Jesus confronts Saul and Saul falls off the donkey. He's terrified by the blinding light that shines around Jesus Christ as he is being made manifest to Paul. And Paul then is, uh, Paul at the time called Saul. Um, it's important also to understand that Paul is just his Hebrew name and, or sorry, Saul is his Hebrew name and Paul is his Gentile name. It's not like an Abram, Abraham thing. Uh, nevertheless, Saul is there riding on this donkey, going to arrest some Christians. And the union with Christ is shown forth mightily here because what Jesus says to Saul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's confronting Saul because Saul is arresting the Christians. And so Jesus is showing that his body, the church, is actually part of him. He considers what's done to his church to be done unto him. And we're going to see that that union with Christ is a corporate union and actually plays a great deal into the ending of 1 Corinthians 15. Everything that Christ encounters, he does so on the behalf of saints, it works that direction, and it also works the other direction, that everything which happens to the saints, Christ considers it to happen to him in the sense of if you offend or war against or seek to kill the saints, you're attempting to persecute Christ himself. And so what begins at the incarnation, Christ's taking on of our flesh, our frail, human, mundane existence in physical bodies that are living in worlds that are subject to corruption, Christ taking on this physical frame, which begins at the incarnation, is fully made manifest at the resurrection. And so Jesus Christ takes on this flesh to make an atonement through death and is resurrected for our sake. Both of these are two sides of the same coin, if you will. The atonement which was made was done with the hope that there would be a resurrection. If Christ simply pays for our sins, then we still do not have any answer to the fact that everyone dies. This reality is often hidden from us in our modern discomfort with death, but I want to impress upon you, it is a normal and healthy thing. We're even encouraged in the Psalms to consider the end of our days. I've, I have some good friends on Facebook, and one of them, his dad just recently passed away on Thursday. They had the uh, viewing yesterday. They didn't have a funeral. They just had a viewing. And what I was totally shocked by is I had this instant revulsion. I was like, wait a second. You can't, you can't die right before Easter. And I, I had this like fleshly uh, revulsion against the fact that this person should die right before we then celebrate the ending of death. And I thought, how, how unfortunate. And yet at the same time, uh, it's a reality. Every single person you've ever known or ever will know will die. And unless Christ's death and resurrection solves that, then his death is ultimately meaningless. Now, lest you say, John, you're bad-mouthing or maligning the cross, I don't think so, because I think that's what Paul is saying here in these verses in, in 1 Corinthians. He says that if the resurrection has not happened, our faith is in vain. The reason being, for Paul, salvation is not just union with God in a spiritual sense, it's resurrection from the dead, a putting back of the way God always wanted it to be, 
bodily humans, creatures who are made in his image, bear not only the image of their maker, but now through the resurrection, the image of their redeemer. This is the the Orthodox Christian faith. This is what Christians have always celebrated as the great hope of our faith. Verse 23, uh, in Romans 4, we're going to quickly turn to Romans 4, uh, not, uh, not dealing with 1 Corinthians 15 just yet. Paul says, it was counted to Abraham, uh, th- those were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, verse 24, it will be counted to us who believed in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's a mistake to think that the cross is the only thing that accomplishes our justification. He was crucified for our transgressions. He made an atonement. He bore the penalty, the wrath of our sin, but also his very resurrection was for our justification. And that justification in the way that Paul's reasoning is not just a spiritual justification. It's a total salvation, which will be made manifest at the second coming. Christ's resurrection is not just proof of our justification, but it is also the proof of the foundation for the reason to believe our future future, uh, eventual resurrection at his coming. Some in the Corinthian church at this time, the reason Paul's arguing about this, the reason he's writing about this, is that they were teaching that there is only a spiritual afterlife. This was a common heresy in the first century church, and it is a great indication of the weakness of the American church that this is such a popular doctrine today. Now, again, as I've said before, no one would ever come out and deny the bodily resurrection, but it is practically denied by neglect. Neglect is a justification for, uh, for removing yourself from one's company. The, the abuse which can happen in a parental relationship or a spousal relationship is not just physical abuse or emotional abuse. It is also abandonment and neglect. And so our treatment of this doctrine, though we would never come out and say it, though, though we would never deny the bodily resurrection, it almost is excluded completely so as to constitute an abuse and a neglect, a way of downplaying it in such a way as to say it's not important for us. It's often the case that many of our errors as Christians in doctrine and in practice are not from outright rejections, but complete omissions, such to the point that we become guilty just as if we had rejected or not received that doctrine. And those are often very hard to find. And so it is a great grace by God that he's given us his scriptures. Verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This is a clear indication that of the many factious things that were happening in the Corinthian church, various leaders were trying to establish themselves and draw away a following to them and disrupt the unity of the church. And Paul here is shaming all of them. He's done that on a number of different levels already in the earlier part of 1 Corinthians, dealing with those who will not judge sin as sin, dealing with those who do not believe that Christians have to continue to fulfill their covenantal obligations of marriage and uh, fidelity and chastity, these things. And now he deals with this fact that some people in that church at the time were attempting to say that there is no resurrection. Everything that we had been hoping for already happened. 
And some of them were disturbing the faith of their fellow brothers and sisters, saying something like, well, if you didn't already you know, get caught up in it, we're, we've already missed out, and the rest of history is just doomed. And uh, it, their, their understanding of where the doctrine would take them was actually quite correct. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, if you do not understand the principle of Paul's reasoning, this verse makes no sense. Because we don't see a necessary correlation or a, or a chain between these two ideas. Paul says if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means that Christ has not been raised. Now, you and I think cause and effect, right? Uh, just because there is no effect doesn't mean there was no cause. It just means that that cause wasn't sufficient to cause the effect. Does that make sense? I think I've lost most of you. You're all deers and headlights. Think about it like this. If you say, you know, come with me and we're going to go to the ice cream store, it does not follow that if you don't come with me that I don't go to the ice cream store. In fact, it's almost a guarantee I might get two cones for me. Because <laughs> The point is, here Paul is saying, if you don't go with me, then I can't go to the ice cream store. That's the kind of logic that Paul's using. And the reason is because there's a direct tie there. Paul is saying that what has happened to Christ happened in order that it would happen to us. That is, Christ, as a forerunner for his bride, encounters everything that she needs for her sake, on her behalf. And so what Paul is saying is, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means what Christ testified by his resurrection is not true. And it's so important to see that our deep neglect of understanding the, where this is going, the great blessed hope, is a functional neglect and a maligning against the resurrection because of this argumentation. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. The reason being is, if there's no resurrection for the body, then that means Christ, did not, uh, Christ was not raised because Christ will not leave his people behind. That's Paul's argumentation and reasoning here. In celebrating the resurrection of Christ today at, at Easter, we're affirming the historic faith. This is a unification of us as we declare week by week that we believe in one holy universal church, that there is one group of people that Christ has purchased by his blood and also has guaranteed her resurrection and true full justification with God by his resurrection. There will be a resurrection from the dead when Christ returns, and we will live, live with him in the world to come forever, forever. Um, one of my favorite theologians is a guy by the name of Doug Wilson. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, this earth is not my home, I'm just passing through, right? You've heard that phrase? I, I like that phrase, it's, it's okay, but Doug Wilson's turn of that phrase is, heaven's not my home, I'm just passing through. I like that phrase a lot more, because what he's saying is, there's a great misunderstanding about Christianity. We will, of course, be with the Lord at rest, but that is not our final state. Our final state is resurrection. And this is so important to remember, especially for a young church who is beginning to get older. Believe it or not, some of you are getting older, and eventually we will come into the place where our church encounters funerals. It doesn't seem like that, right? We're in the time of babies being born. We're a very young congregation. But it's important to develop the doctrines which are necessary for all of life. You cannot simply say, well, that's really for old people. We don't have a lot of old people. No, you are just as susceptible to death as they are. And it would behoove you to make your faith solid 
by establishing an understanding of what the Christian hope is for those who pass away, for those who die in Christ. So the resurrection of Christ is also proof that Christ still has a kingdom. Sometimes you uh, consider yourself to be, uh, yeah, you know, I'm mature in the faith, or I'm growing in the faith, or I read my Bible and I understand it a lot. And right after we uh, left here, uh, my wife and I drove back to our house after Good Friday, and she brought up the point that, you know, only the thief on the cross believed that Jesus still had a kingdom. And at that moment, I was just like, man, I'm a sinner. I need help. I never thought of that. It's an amazing idea, but it's so true. And Paul reasons the exact same way from from the resurrection. It's a proof that he still has a kingdom. We're going to see this next week when we revisit the rest of Luke 24 in the road to Emmaus. But if you have ever read that account, you remember Jesus shows up and he walks with these two disciples as they're going up to Jerusalem or sorry, away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and he encounters them, and they said, as we emphasized last year, but we had hoped that he would be the Messiah. It shows that they completely had left behind any notion that Christ was the king, and that he was not only the king of Israel, but the king of the kingdom of God. And here, Paul reasons in this exact same way. The resurrection is proof that Christ has a kingdom, has brought his kingdom, and will bring it to completion and fulfillment. When Christ began his ministry, he picked up the very same torch that John the Baptist had been carrying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or to put it another way, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, in Matthew, they recorded the kingdom of heaven. In, in the other gospels, they use the phrase the kingdom of God. And so Jesus Christ picks up that same token, uh, that, that same uh, torch as it's being carried, passed along in a marathon or in a relay race. And he, he preaches a message saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's at the door. It's coming quickly. It's right on the cusp of breaking in. After that, he declares that if he casts out demons by the finger of God, know that the kingdom of God is in your midst or has come upon you. He preached the kingdom was coming. He brought the kingdom in power in his earthly ministry, doing signs and wonders and miracles. And then in saying it is finished and being raised from the dead, Paul understands that that is the establishing of the kingdom. The kingdom has been brought. It is here. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. And here, right, right at this moment, is when we have to re-examine all our thoughts about the future. That is to say, our eschatologies concerning what, where is this going? Where is Christianity going? If we live only by sight today, as American Christians or Christians who live in America, we see a great disaster coming upon the Christian church in our country. Walking by sight alone is not what we are called to do. We are called as Christians to walk by faith and that faith being grounded in the testimonies and promises of God. Paul says that at the end, Christ comes after something takes place. In verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the uh, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every power, every authority. Most popular eschatologies function like this. Christ comes, he judges all men, 
There's a war, which they call Armageddon, in which he kills all the kings of the earth as they're arrayed against the nation of Israel. And then after that, he then is bringing his kingdom and it's fully come. That eschatology in my mind does not function well with this verse. It says, verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. You see, Christ is reigning right now because in the eternal counsels of God, the Father has longed for a kingdom. He's longed for a creation which would be his place to rule with his people. And Christ, because he loves the Father, not only has made an atonement, but is reigning now, the proof of which was given at Pentecost. His reign is being done for a specific purpose, that is, to bring everything about into his intended end, so that the kingdom would be mature, so that when he returns, he hands it over to the Father. Christ does not come to establish the kingdom. He comes when the kingdom is fully established. Verse 24 says, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He does not come to destroy the powers. He comes after they are destroyed. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Who are the feet of, of Jesus Christ? The feet of Jesus Christ are part of his body. That is the church. The Psalms tell over and over again, the Lord has made his throne in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. And this is where the body of Christ must continue to repent. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Most eschatologies, the first enemy to be destroyed is death. There's a resurrection from the dead, and then he judges all nations, and then comes the end of the kingdom. But in Paul's understanding of what the resurrection means is Christ is king now, he's reigning now, and he's wielding the authority in heaven in order to bring about the maturity of the kingdom of God, not the establishing of the kingdom of God. So as the body of Christ, we ought to continue to repent of false doctrines, which place all victory after the second coming of Christ. And Paul's reasoning is this is intimately tied to the resurrection. Christ was raised in victory. He is gaining victory now and he'll return when his victory is complete. Brothers and sisters, our celebration of Easter is not full until we understand that his resurrection was done for our behalf, that there would be a resurrection in the future at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. He is mighty, he is glorious. We love his resurrection. We thank you that he encountered these things not just for himself, not just to fulfill your desire, but he encountered them because of his great love for you that he would be able to prepare a bride, that we would not only be part of his body, but that as part of his body, we would be involved in crushing his enemies. We pray that you would forgive us, God, of our deep neglect of considering our faith, considering what we believe about your future in light of the scriptural text. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the spiritual wisdom that we would not only behold Christ as our atonement and also the proof of our eventual resurrection, but that we would understand that his resurrection is proof that he is king. Not only is he king crowned on the cross, but he is king and rose in victory. We pray, Lord, that you would begin to bring us as a people, as a church, into an ever-increasingly clear functional victory over your enemies. We pray that we would be convinced of the effectiveness of the gospel, which is foolishness to man, but mighty wisdom, the wisdom of God. We pray that you would give us this power 
only by the Holy Spirit, that you alone would get the glory. Lord, we thank you. We, we ask you, Father, that as we go from this place, that you would grant us the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to celebrate and rightly glory in the work of Jesus. In his mighty name we pray, and for his glory we ask for these things. Amen.